Welcome to another Bite Side. I'm Seamus Byrne. This is a show about tech and games and digital culture and all those nice nerdy things that we love on on our digital stuff and the internet and our screens. If it basically if it comes to a screen at you, we like talking about it. That's kind of how Bite Side works. Joining me this week, Chris Button. Chris, how you doing? Hello. I'm very good, thank you. I'm only just getting my voice back from getting very excited at the footy at the weekend, but oh. uh, very uh, very good otherwise. Um, I can't remember. Are you uh, Crows or Power? Uh, which way does it work? Uh, I'm a Crows man, so I'm a very, very happy boy. Uh, okay. Very happy. <laughs> <laughs> now that's good to hear. And look, I, I thought for a moment you were going to talk about, you know, recovering your voice because you were sort of sick last week or something, because I was sick last week. Um, I managed to power through. Anybody who's managed to catch the first week of the Bits podcast, um, yeah, will hopefully be like, really? He was sick last week, but he did that show every every morning. What a great job. Um, in which case, thank you. I doff my hat to you. Um, but yes, I'm feeling a lot fresher this week. And it is the start of the week. We've kind of decided to to reshift around the timing that we're going to do the Bite Side show. So we're sort of reflecting on a big theme, um, whether it's from the previous week or just in general in the world of tech at the moment. And this week, um, our our theme is kind of a little bit broad, but it, it kind of slots together in a lot of imaging tech type stuff that's going on. And so we're going with like an enhance and augment kind of a theme this week. Um, looking at a whole bunch of stuff that was in the news last week and in recent weeks uh, that just gives us a good excuse to look at the state of play across um, imaging technology, everything from kind of deep fakery to image enhancement through to augmented reality type stuff and even a bit of VR that's kind of floating around at the moment. So that's our big broad umbrella. Um, We're going to touch on Adobe's super resolution technology and how that works and what the hell is going on there. Uh, A lot of the deep fakery type stuff that's been talked about a lot. And then, yeah, Facebook and their crazy augmented reality wristbands and PlayStation and their reveal of this like slow boil reveal system where they're like, hey, we're going to show you the controllers. We haven't shown you a new helmet yet, but we're going to show you the the controllers because you're not going to be stuck with 10-year-old wands anymore. But let's kick things off talking about uh, the whole Adobe super resolution technology. It was early last week that we sort of hit on this, uh, this new story. And it's essentially the idea that as of now, the latest update to uh, all things uh, Adobe Photoshop, uh, you get it through your Creative Cloud updates these days. So it's kind of one of those cases where it's no longer, um, uh, you yeah, no longer you buy the new version. You're just, you're a subscriber now. That's how it works. Uh, and through your subscription, you will get access to the new feature. And literally in a menu now, there's a button that just says enhance dot, dot, dot. And you hit the enhance button and it just goes, let me just multiply the pixels in this picture by four for you. And we're going to use an AI technology to not just kind of up-res in the classical sense of just, you know, doing a bit of a guess and going, oh, you want more pixels? I mean, we'll give you more pixels. They might not look very good, but we'll give you some more. Uh, This is focused on that idea of saying, oh, you want to probably print this at a bigger resolution. Therefore, those extra pixels actually have to look like they belong there. Uh, And so we're going to give them to you in a way that, by our best guess, having looked at billions of other images, uh, that this is probably what those extra pixels are going to look like. Uh, 
that's kind of exciting in some senses. One of the really cool ideas attached to that is, you know, um, you've got an older photo. They they pointed out heaps of photos, let's say like digital photos from the last 20 years you might have that maybe were taken at, you know, four to seven, even up to kind of 10 or 12 megapixels. They don't look that good if you try to print a big version of it to put on your wall, even though it looks beautiful on a screen. Um, so this tech is about saying you can do that print now and actually it should look pretty cool. Um, Chris, what are your thoughts on this one? I'm kind of both excited and tentative, um, as is the case for anyone who is mildly, uh, you know, worried about how these things get out of hand. But yeah, what are you, what are your initial thoughts? I think much, much the same, really. Uh, mainly excitement, not, not too much as far as tentative feelings, uh, go, but, Adobe has certainly been working pretty hard on a lot of the auto enhancements and a lot of these, you know, adaptive technologies over recent years. And, you know, it's becoming more of a, a consumer level thing that we can make these really fancy enhancements to our pictures to make them look way better than what they do straight out of the camera. Because I remember reporting for Byteside late last year about a range of features that came out to, to Photoshop, as you say, through the Creative Cloud and subscription service. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not subscribed to the Creative Cloud at the moment, a little bit out of my price range for you know how much I would use it for. But a lot of the stuff does sound very, very cool because last year there was lots of stuff in the auto sky enhancements. So if you took oh, a, a right. picture on an overcast day perhaps, which is perfect for lighting photos, but it doesn't necessarily make for a very pretty backdrop. So you can take a nice evenly lit overcast photo and then in Photoshop automatically replace it with a nice bright blue sunny sky, which that sort of technology, you know, you've, you've been able to do that for ages as long as you've had the know-how and the patience to go through yeah. and do it manually. But uh, a lot of these things now you can do with the click of a button or the adjustment of a few sliders. And now with the, the super resolution technology, as you've been saying, Seamus, a, a lot of the use cases are for, you know, printing things out. Uh, so if you've got a picture that has a, a low DPI or, you know, a low sort of pixel count, then you can give it a bit of a boost and, you know, add sort of, or Photoshop rather will add extra pixels where it thinks it should be in uh, in alignment with the, the picture that you've got. I saw there was one example on the Adobe blog post which had a really close-up, blown-up photo of like a, a solitaire playing card. And on the first image pre-enhancement, they had the photo of the, the king. And, you know, as you do when you zoom into an image uh, a lot, you know, it gets all pixelated and it's a bit rough uh, on the eye. But then with the super resolution AI technology, the after photo has it all very smoothed out and it's it's a little bit uncanny, you know, how sort of accurate it looks. But yeah. it, I'm, I'm curious and I haven't seen a lot of use cases with it used on people's faces, but I wonder if it would create a little bit of an uncanny valley look with sort of how it would deal with, you know, regular blemishes and that sort of thing. But interesting technology, that's for sure. 
Yeah. And then, like, it's funny, it kind of reminds me as well that it, it definitely, I think, caught a lot of people's attention this past week because it just, it you know, it it reeks of the, you know, zoom and enhance type of vibe from Blade Runner, right? Where it's like, oh, if we can invent pixels, then suddenly we can just, you know, zoom in and it's all pixelated and then just say enhance and it magically sees things that were never really there, um, which kind of has a bit of a creepy factor. But as you say, when you think about a lot of the other ways that this tech is actually already in use, um, a really big one is actually the way that, you know, that Google uses its really amazing night photo modes um, on Pixel phones. And I think, yeah, I think the same tech is in, you know, a lot of the camera tech on other Android phones, uh, depending on whether, you know, the the manufacturer is kind of working with some of the traditional, you know, stock sort of Android features or not. But some of those night modes are basically using an AI algorithm to sort of say, actually, I can tell what is in this picture and I know the color that that thing is meant to be. And then it's essentially able to color correct the whole image, even though it's very dark, by knowing what certain things in that picture are meant to be colored like. And that gives it a point of reference to then, you know, do the whole overhaul of white balance, color balance um, within that sort of dark image. And in that respect, it's like, I mean, this that stuff works so amazingly well, but we kind of know that, you know, what's in the picture is what's there. And we kind of forego the idea that, well, it used AI to know the right way to then enhance what was in that picture. Um, so it's sort of funny that how, yeah, this resolution kind of discussion does in my own head too, you know, make me sort of worry about like, oh, you know, well, what is it doing there to really... Um, turn that into something that wasn't technically there. And you're like, well, neither did that night photo actually capture those colors into the lens in exactly the right way. But using the tech, as long as, you know, so many of those other elements were there, then it's able to just kind of get that enhancement right. And I do also like that in that blog post um, that Adobe sort of you know, mentioned a lot of this stuff in, that they did point out as well that, even with a brand new phone right now uh, that might be shooting at sort of 12 to 15 megapixels, something like that. You know, there's definitely some of the Android phones that have a lot more megapixels than, than that. But um, even then, you know, the, again, the quality of the pixels is a big part of the story. Um, but those kinds of pictures that we're even taking today won't necessarily blow up nicely on a wall, that this kind of resolution enhancement is about being able to take something that looks beautiful on a screen and actually turning into something that will also look beautiful if you want to put it up on a wall, um, you know, at a size that isn't just, yeah, you can probably get a, a, a pleasant enough A3 print of something out of a, a new phone. But then if you try to stick that size of print on your wall, you suddenly realize it's still it's still pretty small by comparison to what your brain thinks you want a poster-sized uh, version of that photo to look like <laughs> indeed and it's interesting when when you mentioned about you know it's sort of reeking of the the blade runner and a lot of sci-fi or even non-sci-fi you know crime procedurals the old zoom and enhance sort of thing yep. i do i do wonder what the the legal implications of such technology of such sort of adaptive resolution technology is because as you see on tv bulletins of the news and that sort of stuff when or Crime Stoppers when they're looking for, oh, we're looking for this person and you've got this super blurry image from a CCTV camera. I, I wonder what the, the legalities are surrounding, you know, can 
if it gets to a certain point, will law enforcement or uh, sort of similar agencies be able to use this technology? And if so, how much will they be able to rely upon it and trust it to actually uh, sort of identify potential suspects and that sort of thing? That's something that's possibly some years away, but I, I do wonder how and if and when this sort of technology will be integrated to to some extent in in regards to to law enforcement. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, that's a great point to feed us into this whole deep fake side of this discussion because uh, I also remember just a couple of years ago at one of Adobe's big events, they were showing off um, audio deep fake technology and, you know, it's one of those areas that just like the image deep fake stuff, and again, we've seen plenty of that in the news in recent weeks, um, that... That whole question of how do you detect what has technically been manipulated versus what was really in an image, um, that's getting more complicated by the day. And in some respects, we're almost more prepared for the idea that we now know that deep fake images exist. But I think there's a lot of people who are probably unaware that there's pretty similar technology that actually lets you just like type out a script and using voice samples of someone famous, turn that into um, their voice. I mean, well, literally we kind of had that, you know, story recently where a bunch of animated character mm. voices um, can be, you know, essentially deep faked in that kind of uh, audio sense um, through a simple web interface. Um, so there's so many of these things where you're like the detection tech is actually going to be more and more important as we go forward too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in regards to that story where there was sort of this this tool, and I do remember the creator of this tool being very against the use of the phrase deep fake because what they were doing wasn't deep fake and, you know, we're getting on caught up on technicalities here, but yeah. uh, you know, with with fictional characters, especially uh, one of the ones was SpongeBob SquarePants. I don't think you're going to get in too much trouble for making SpongeBob SquarePants say stupid things because it's going to be pretty obvious that uh, no, that's uh, not from an actual episode. No, SpongeBob did not say those controversial statements. Yes, the lost episodes. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Whereas with the sort of deep fake technology imitating real life people, whether it be celebrities or other people or whatever, then yeah, there's there's a lot of other considerations because you know, we've we've already had plenty of things in, in the past, or we still do have plenty of issues with manipulation of still images. And I think you could probably speak to nearly any woman of prominence who has had their likeness put on to, say, an adult model and that yeah. sort of stuff, um, which, you know, that's that's a whole separate issue in and of itself. But, you know, then sort of extending that to, to videos where it's looking really, really realistic and very difficult to tell, is this actually the real person or is this not? So, yeah, um, yeah there's a lot of stuff going on, but then there's also uh, a lot of apps and that sort of thing which play with sort of deep fake sort of AI technology that's very clearly meant to be played for laughs and meant to be sort of a little bit uncanny valley because I think one that's been a little bit popular over recent weeks has been uh, Wombo, uh, which is the name of an app where 
it sort of takes a still image and uh, of of a, a person or people have put animated or fictional characters in this as well and it will then sort of animate that person to lip sync along with uh, you know a variety of songs oh, that's right yeah, yeah which uh, there's <laughs> They've licensed or they've only got a limited amount of songs you can do it with. So I imagine they've licensed you know, a small amount of songs because I can't imagine it'd be a cheap exercise. <laughs> but of course, one of them is Rick Astley never going to give you up. Uh, and then there's a few other sort of, you know, meme internet famous songs, which you can do it with as well. And I've seen a few go around. And, and of course, you know, the internet's favorite love child, Elon Musk, uh, has, uh, you know, had a wombo version of himself which has appeared and you you can tell it's it's not him but geez it's it's getting pretty close this stuff to you know thinking okay yeah elon musk is singing rick astley songs at me now uh but yeah there's there's some other other technology and i remember seamus you did a i think it was a podcast episode last year on someone who was Doing deep fake comedy or deep fake sketches. Oh, yeah, with Harry Shearer. Yeah, 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 with uh, you know former President Donald Trump's likeness yeah. as well. And yeah. I know you've you've been looking into and you're quite interested in sort of the more technical aspects of sort of the deep fake technology and perhaps at least at this sort of early stage of the technology. We shouldn't be too stressed about sort of everyday people being realistically deep faked, but there's certainly ways it can be done with a team of uh, expert people who know what they're doing. Yeah. And look, um, it's a good point you sort of made there earlier and sort of hooks back in there again is that there is the worrying aspect of, you know, I guess famous people very easy for a famous person to sort of be like, well, of course I didn't do that ridiculous thing. When these things are put towards, you know, abuse and bullying and, you know, sort of almost the revenge porn type space where it's like, well, someone can mock up kind of a pretty, you know, quick and horrible thing that just raises that specter of, well, is it real or isn't it? And it's entirely about trying to abuse almost always women um, that sort of stuff is horrible and dangerous and there's definitely an awful lot that needs to be done on that front. But, yeah, I think once we then sort of come into this wave of, you know, the Tom Cruise type deep fakes and things that have been going on, it was sort of funny how, again, that got like covered everywhere because it was so accurate and really, really like impressively freakishly good. People even ran them through a number of the deep fake detection algorithms that are out there which are designed to try to work out is this thing real or not it passed all the tests on those sorts of ones it really started getting people worried um but then the people behind it came out and were like we threw hollywood technology and manpower at turning this thing into you know what it was in the end and so for them they're like we don't need to really be worried about this kind of level of the technology yet because this still took many, many hours of laborious work to make it look that perfect. Um, it wasn't just something that was, you know, fed into a casual, uh, you know, tool and just spat out this like perfect Tom Cruise uh, lookalike. Um, so, you know, it's, it is, there's always that interesting tension, isn't there, of like what gets the attention 
versus what are the things that we actually, you know, should be worrying about in in some regards. And there was even, yeah, I did have a story on Bits last week, which was looking at the fact that um, someone found a new uh, test that can find, you know, when things have been algorithmically generated, um, they use um, generative uh, adversarial networks uh also yeah like the neural technology um which is this kind of really clever i i love that whole ai tech concept if you see gan use g-a-n then that's talking about these adversarial networks and that's the idea where the ai has taught itself to get better at doing this thing by also having a you know companion ai that tries to guess if it was fake or not um, and by having that sort of adversarial situation where one is trying to make the best one it can and another AI is trying to see if it can detect if it was fake or not, then that makes both AIs better over time because they start learning from each other on how to actually be a better fake and be a better detection system. Um, but yeah, what, there's someone came up with a new detection system that's totally based on the reflection in the eyeball on a fake uh, a fake face that's been, you know, and that's like the full full version deep fake where it's just a face that never existed before that has just been generated purely um, using an algorithm. And that's used a lot in creating fake social media profiles um, to, you know, be used to just, you know, create troll farms and, you know, and spam farms and, you know, politically motivated systems. Um, but yeah, literally someone's noticed that, well, actually the if you compare just that reflection on the two different corneas of the eye, um, these kinds of things aren't being done as accurately as they should be for that reflection. And part of that just makes me think, well, give it a week and someone will put that, make sure they put that into the algorithm for the for the other one so that it's now pretty soon it'll be perfect across both eyes and that detection system won't work anymore either. So does that mean that if if someone wanted to deep fake, say, a, a streamer or a YouTuber, then all they'd have to do was uh, put ring light reflections in their eyes? <laughs> because right. pretty, pretty well, uh, I think that's sort of the, the internet signature uh picture at the moment is that you know if if you've got the the ring light reflection then you are you are someone who is well versed in sort of performing or recording for the internet it's funny isn't it totally they just have to that's the new like press that mode for influencer mode um to get the correct (laughs) corneal reflection um and uh and in, in some ways it makes me feel like you having said that i'm like man ring lights are gonna go out they're gonna like become something people are going to have to get rid of soon, aren't they? Because as much as they do work really, really well, mm. it's now going to become passe and people are going to be like, well, now I need a full three-light rig to ensure that I'm getting the correct key lighting on my hair on this angle and it has to be a slightly different hue of colour and you know, otherwise you're clearly just a hack who all you have is a ring light. <laughs> and that's that's not to diss on content creators uh, at all because you oh, know they, they do they do great work but yeah it is it is um I do get a little bit of a, a chuckle you know when there there are lo- so many selfies on on social media and especially among uh, Twitch and and YouTubers uh you know it's it's very much a signature look you get that you know nice bright ring uh, in in each eye so uh I'd I'd probably be surprised if people went for the the three key light look. That's probably a, a little bit uh, a little bit more expensive than going for the uh, 
more affordable and more accessible ring light. Well, they just all go with smart lights behind them these days. On a, ah, like, of course. And look, you know, I kind of say that because I've got some and I almost put them up and I went, ah, oh. but then my office is going to look like every other nerd office. And, and we're all in that horrible game of trying to work out how do you... <laughs> How do you manage your space so that you you look similar to but not so similar to that you're just like everybody else's background of your actual room? <laughs> yes, yes. No, we're just, just making sure you've customised the nano leaves just right just so it's, you know, a slightly different colour scheme to everyone else. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like a slightly different purple and blue hue than most other people's purple and, bl- and blue hue. Yes. Yeah, not Twitch blue. Sorry, not Twitch purple, nor uh, Cadbury purple, nor whatever other, you know. I wonder, can you even dial up a Pantone number in the lighting systems now? I bet you probably can if you get the right app. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. One to look into. Yeah. Look, let's. Oh, yeah, there was one other interesting thing that just came up in the deep fakery space today that's just worth throwing out there as a, as a mention is that a, uh, I believe it was a Japanese. Gentleman, he's about 50 years old, has, you know, I think I'm just not quite sure if he outed himself because I only just half heard this one this morning, outed himself or was outed by somebody else as the person behind a deep faked um, influencer Twitter account of this, you know, young woman who rides motorcycles around, um, you know, just around the place looking cool um in you know the biker leathers and just taking selfies and being a cool online type person um it turned out the whole account i noticed the account has about twenty five thousand followers um and it turned out that actually the whole thing was uh deep faked of this guy just taking selfies of himself being out riding his motorcycle and then just replacing uh the the head in the shots with this you know young attractive woman um instead and just making that being the account that it was and you know it's again it was when you look at it now you know in that context and it was an account i had happened to follow previously but you sort of go through it and and with that knowledge you're like yep yep i can tell that these are a bunch of you know just kind of things again that are relatively cheaply just you know fed into a system and it's dropped that person's kind of face into the images and the face is definitely AI manipulated to suit the angle of the photo and all that sort of jazz. But um, just, yeah, another little weird one where it's like, yep, a lot of people thought they were following this cool woman riding around on a motorbike and actually it was a 50-year-old guy. How interesting. And that sort of feeds into, you know, using social media as an alternate self or, you know, different personas because one uh, one thing, especially bring it back to content creation, one thing that does appear to be uh, trending or, you know, becoming on the up in the West after being quite popular in uh, various Asian region, regions for a while is VTubers of people, yeah. people making these virtual avatars of, well, not necessarily themselves, they could be, entirely new characters of their own creation yeah. that they rig up um, to you know, various motion uh, software and that sort of thing. So they act out as this uh, sort of virtual, you know, persona uh, of, of themselves, which it's, yeah, it's it's not, not deep fake sort of stuff, but it's very much, you know, that whole performative use of social media and being able to use social media to act out as someone else, which it's... Uh, 
it's interesting with the example of the Japanese gentleman who was sort of portraying as a a young woman. I don't know anything other than what you've told me, Seamus, but I, I wonder what the sort of end goal was, whether he genuinely wanted to sort of role play as a as a young woman or whether yeah. it was to just just for the sake of tricking people or whatever. I don't know. And and that's a great point that yeah, that motives play a huge part in sort of, you know, what we should even be thinking about some of this stuff. Because yeah, there's plenty to be said for someone doing that saying, I just wanna have this online persona and, you know, and just have this alternate kind of life through this mode of the way I enjoy riding my motorcycle around. Or it might be that they were like going, maybe if this gets big enough, I can fake my way to getting some, you know, product endorsements and things that have nothing to do with me. But if I can build a business, then that's great too. Um, There's so many layers to this stuff. Mm. And I think the VTuber thing, I think you're right, is a great point Um, in just, you know, another sort of space again around this. But there is so much to be said for creating that comfort zone for you to be performative in whatever way you want to be, right? Because that sort of clever use of, you know, animation technology so that you're just getting to be that different person, you know, and and that way in which, you know, it's like actors, I think, right? So many people think they've got such an easy job, but, you know, someone who tinkered in acting as a teenager and stuff, it's like, it is really hard to genuinely like drop all pretense and just fully commit to being someone else. You know, it's totally its own thing. And so giving yourself that opportunity to be this animated character instead of you trying to be like this larger than life alternate version of yourself down the barrel of a camera with your real face, um, totally different beast. It's something where, you know, for all of the horrible, crazy crap that um, Dr. Disrespect has kind of, you know, done over the years and stuff. There's something to be said for those kinds of people who, as Twitch streamers, have gone going, well, actually, I'm going to, yeah, put on a pair of sunglasses and a wig and and just be this other person, you mm. know, and be a genuine character and embodying that character for for the duration of a live stream, right? Because that's a totally different space Whereas anybody who sort of does that a lot will say it's like you've got nowhere to hide, and if you were if you were just acting, you get to pause now and then, and you get to sort of you know break character and then get back into character for the next shot, and then it all gets pieced together in the end. You know, or even if you're doing it on stage, then you're off stage sometimes. There's usually an intermission. There's all that. Whereas doing a genuine live stream as a character means you are constantly in this heightened mode trying to be this other version of yourself um which can be really really hard to do <laughs> mm. and i i wonder if and to sort of you know take it on on a slight tangent because you do hear a lot of stories about content creators burning out because yes. being being live and being on camera for hours on end day in day out is is exhausting and it takes up a lot of energy and a lot of people put a lot of time and effort and planning into this so i wonder whether you know sort of being able to have that separation through you know vtubing or another sort of avatar or playing a character i wonder if that sort of lends itself to more sustainable content creation because you know as as you said Perhaps it does give you some opportunities to be, uh, to have those moments of, of rest and not be sort of always 
on the whole time. So, yeah, I wonder. Yeah, really good point. Um, Look, let's jump in a bit of this augmented and virtual reality stuff to wrap things up. We've had two big announcements over the last week, um, both of them relating to control systems. So one was Facebook uh, announcing its augmented reality wristband technology. I guess not announcing so much as revealing that it is something it is very actively working on because, of course, there's a big difference between uh, working on something and shipping something. And, Mm. you know, but it's a really clever idea, wristbands that will actually read your brain signals that you kind of send to your fingers. So, you know, essentially instead of needing to track the fingers individually in order to, uh, you know, to know all the finesse details of something that you want to be doing in an augmented reality space, by putting them in the wristband and then sort of reading those impulses that are channeling through your wrist, it's essentially able to get all of that same sort of delicate manipulation just without needing weird cameras or gloves or any of that other stuff. And it can finesse all the way down to letting you essentially type on a virtual keyboard just by like tapping your fingers as if you're typing on a keyboard and that would kind of work nicely um, through to being able to kind of, you know, touch and tap and manipulate objects in an augmented reality environment um, just because it can tell what your hand's trying to do. And then, We've got PlayStation VR revealing its version 2.0 controllers, which look a lot like the you know, classic sort of Oculus Rift controllers and I think some of the more advanced HTC controllers mm-hmm. um, now, which is you know, something where there's kind of a bit of a, a halo that kind of surrounds your, your fingers and, and then there's like a thumbstick underneath your thumb and then a few little buttons that you can press and manipulate. But one of the main things is that that halo is also then actually tracking the movement of uh, your, your main three fingers, your thumb, your index finger, and your middle finger in order for you to be able to sort of manipulate objects within uh, the VR environment. Um, in some ways, I kind of almost find it interesting that, well, right, I guess, again, one of these is about to ship, the other isn't. Um, but that in some ways that sort of Facebook tech is trying to take another step beyond needing to even be holding that kind of controller in your hand uh, at all, you know, and just skip straight past that to think of something that is a little bit more uh, indirect but gets the job done without you even needing to think, oh, I didn't pack my controllers today because I'm sure that that, uh, that wristband tech could then apply into, you know, Oculus Rift for VR as much as it is being targeted at AR type stuff, but that it makes more sense of you don't want to pack controllers with you to then do something in AR out in the real world um, that happens to have been you know, integrated into you know some kind of outdoor experience. But you know, I, I don't. Which ones of these had you had you seen, and uh, you know what's kind of exciting you about? you know, what's coming through with these sorts of uh, control techs. Yeah, so I hadn't looked too much into the Facebook AR wristbands, but certainly the, the concept sounds really fascinating, especially as you mentioned with how, you know, reads finger movements and, and signals to, you know, generate things such as a virtual keyboard and that sort of thing. And I sort of hear about that in theory and then I wonder how, how will that feel in practice? Will they... You know, I wonder if, you know, with some of these, because you hear of various AR and VR tech and also there's other companies working on, um, you know, various body kits and that sort of stuff to provide some of the, the haptic response uh, to some of the action yeah. that you come across. So I wonder, oh, will I be able to tweak what to, 
uh, what sort of mechanical keyboard switch I'm going to be typing on today. I feel like <laughs> typing on a cherry brown. Oh, but later on, I you know want something a bit more clicky. So uh, it'll be interesting to see you know if if that sort of stuff plays into it. But yeah. the the PSVR uh, 2.0 controller. As you say, it does look like it's borrowing uh, borrowing a lot of those design elements from what the the Oculus and the high high end HTC Vive stuff is doing, and it looks uh, yeah a bit more sort of a well not not legitimate, but it looks a bit more of a, a hardcore piece of technology than the PlayStation Move controllers, which have been out since the PlayStation Three days. Which yeah. can can you believe they've been around that long? Goodness, I remember yeah. those things were used for some of those you know sort of mini game compilations. But then there were other games like Heavy Rain, which I think shoehorned some of the PlayStation Move uh, components into it. But again, uh, this is stuff that. They're showing us, they're talking about it, so it sounds cool, it looks cool, but we don't know a lot of tangible information beyond that because we don't really have any information on what the next step in PlayStation VR actually is as far as the actual VR unit. Uh, We've still got the, the VR unit that has been around for a few years now. I'm not sure how long off the top of my head, but certainly... While you know HTC and Oculus and similar brands have had several iterations, we've essentially had. While there's been some minor, 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 minor sort of upgrades to the PlayStation VR unit, it is in essence you know, the, the the same model more or less with some slight tweaks. Whereas the others have made some sort of more significant advancements with each iteration. Um, so that's. That's going to be interesting. Another thing that I find uh, intriguing is how this technology and let's face it, you know, these companies come out with, okay, we're working on an AR wristband. Uh, We've got the the version 2.0 of our VR controllers, which means, of course, all these competing companies are working on various kits of their own. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Microsoft's big announcement with was it microsoft mesh yes yeah so microsoft mesh which is about creating sort of these virtual meeting spaces to sort of better replicate actually having face-to-face meetings and conversations with other people more so than looking at a two-dimensional zoom screen so you, you think about how a lot of this technology and how it captures our movements and sort of replicate sort of our, our sense of self, sort of almost going back to the VTuber sort of stuff, is that, you know, a lot of this stuff is lending itself to being able to create various avatars of ourselves so we can be more connected with people through technology better than what we have been able to in the past. So, yeah, I think Microsoft Mesh as, as a concept is probably the one I'm still most interested in to see how that develops but then these peripherals and other bits of technology are things that will no doubt feed into you know these virtual meeting spaces yeah and look it it kind of strikes me when you're describing particularly even just you know the age on the PlayStation VR helmet now as well as you know the ones that it was using um the move controllers is that kind of fight i guess between 
you know, the way in which console makers, that focus is on, well, you can't just keep forcing people to upgrade all the time. But when we're dealing in a technology like VR, you're essentially saying like, well, you know, we're giving you the screen as well as the console. And so this thing that you buy, we're trying to tell you that it's going to be good enough for the next, you know, X number of years, probably, Mm. you know, they're hoping five plus. But that the speed at which the rest of VR has been getting better over the last, you know, six years has been phenomenal. You know, that like it it is only about six years since I got a, you know, an original generation Vive. And it's like it is quite a few generations old now by comparison to what Vive now has to offer. Um, you know, HTC offers a number of different models. Oculus offers a number of different models. The resolution of those screens is kind of far better than originally was. And in some respects, it kind of makes me think that if if in a console context that, uh, you know, VR is going to have a chance of taking off, that in some ways Xbox is better placed to sort of, you know, to because it has that sort of, you know, shared code base of all things, um, you know, sort of PC architecture, that it might be able to bring some of that wider Microsoft work and and just kind of say this is also going to work on Xbox in a way that actually, you know, that Sony sort of has to say this is the headset. Mm. And and that's a tougher kind of thing for them to, you know, like their customers will feel almost cheated if two years later a better headset comes out. Whereas if you're an Xbox owner and Microsoft is saying that new HP um, headset that everyone's been raving about is also going to work with xbox vr games Mm. then it's like they're bringing a wider ecosystem into their environment and not trying to say this is the headset we promised you is going to be the perfect headset for this generation of console um and that's where it gets tough and i also just want to throw out a a shout out to johan sebastian joust which is like the greatest game for using a playstation move controller of all time part of the sports friends dlc game um it's all there's always a little zone at penny arcade expo um where there is a johan sebastian joust kind of setup and it's basically like i think up to about 10 players and you're holding a move controller and the music kind of speeds up and slows down and you're just not like as the music slows down you have to slow down and it's just tracking how quickly your hand is moving with the wand in it um, it is the most, it's literally one of those games where you go, you just watch around once, like it's a perfect party game thing. You watch around once and you go, okay, I understand how this game works now because everyone's moving around trying to like hit someone else's hand to kind of knock them out of the game while desperately trying to protect their own and like carefully not move it. And sometimes the music even will like a hundred percent stop. And so everyone's trying to stand perfectly still or, you know, they'll get knocked out just by the slightest movement. Such a good use of the PlayStation Move controller and pretty much a reason on its own to like own a bunch of them to just kind of play this fun game. Um, but it really shouldn't be applying to VR environments anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I mean, at the very least, the PlayStation Move controllers do a pretty reasonable job of playing Beat Saber. And I'd say that's, if nothing else, that's the, the core level of competency any VR input needs to have is... Well, Can you play point. Beat yep. Saber, you know, comfortably with it? If so, it's it's okay. It does it does the job. I can yep. still remember most of the movements for KDA's 
pop stars uh, off the top, <laughs> the top of my head. Every time I hear the song, the movements start coming out. <laughs> and look, the, the move controller in that context as well is it, it has that genuine like, you know, if you lift your head up and you see the two balls of light on the ends of, of the one, it's like you feel like I'm holding two Beat Saber Sabers. So, you know, it's like it's a winning setup for that uh, specific context, that's for sure. Um, any final thoughts on what excites you the most about the future of either of these things, whether it's imaging tech? I do know you love to kind of, you know, throw around a good little Photoshop for us on Byteside from time <laughs> to time, um, whether it's on the imaging or the augmented reality and the VR type stuff. What's exciting you most on the road ahead? Yeah, you're certainly right. I do do like messing around with the the old photo editing software. I think the the big exciting thing is that again, you know, if if one company's working on something super exciting technology wise, it means there'll be a bunch of competitors trying to catch up. So while I certainly do like the Adobe suite of programs, as I mentioned before, because of the subscription based uh, payment, that makes it a bit difficult for me to actually commit and be able to use those bits of software. So at the moment, I've been using the Affinity uh, programs, which are one-off purchases, which is uh, much more palatable to someone like myself who doesn't have the money to spend on a regular subscription. So with Adobe working on a lot of these super image image enhancements, I'm hoping that you know the likes of Affinity and fellow sort of image manipulation software you know, will try and come up with their, their own solutions and that sort of thing. And, you know, if I have to make a, a separate one-off purchase, then so be it. But uh, I, you know, do appreciate, you know, there's competition for Adobe and I hope that with Adobe's, you know, continual progression with their AI and various enhancement sort of software developments that that actually follows across and, you know, the competitors also keep up, uh, keep up pace with that as well. Yeah, I've always over the years found you know, Adobe has just, um, particularly when it was that annual cycle for them, they were always so good at at each year kind of dropping one new feature that was a genuine kind of killer feature that made you go, oh, God damn it, I really want access to that <laughs> cool thing that it can do now. Um, you know, way back it was just things like the healing tools and stuff that were just kind of smart at tidying up you know, messy bits of, particularly if you were scanning old photos and stuff like that. Um, then the really big one started to be when it could do things like, you know, just paint people out of the background of, you know, of an image and mm. just be like, yeah, just highlight that person. And you're, yeah, I don't want them in there anymore. And it'll just fill in everything in like an automated way to just make it sort of seem nice. And it was like, oh my God, like that's actually incredible. And then you're right. It's like, it it was a you know like I think stuff like that took a took a couple of years for it to fall into place, but the you know the competitors out there sort of clearly put their thinking caps on and went okay how do we how do we do that too, mm. <laughs> um, and so there's definitely been that element of you know kudos to Adobe I guess where they've managed to land on some of these really smart features that that has kind of put them a little bit in front. But now the competition is fierce, particularly in some of like the, you know, the iPad type technologies and stuff where people have started there and, you know, just came come up with, you know, like shout out to Procreate, you know, based out of Tasmania. But, you know, they kind of, 
went head to head, actually came up with better drawing tools and stuff native to that environment and have reached the point where, you know, they then start to go, oh, we could probably make like desktop versions of our kinds of tools because enough people see that the way we do things is actually, you know, they prefer it in their workflow to the way that sort of some of the traditional, you know, image companies might have done it. So it's cool that there's so much competition out there and that, that these features do sort of eventually trickle down, you know, the one place where trickle down economics might actually work a little bit compared to the actual real world, you know, who'd have thunk it? <laughs> oh, goodness, that's opening a can of worms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not go there. Let's wrap it up, in fact. So, uh, yeah, where can people find you and all your stuff, Chris? Yeah, Twitter's best for me. That's where I spend too much of my time. So you can find me at Bibbyboy. So that's B-I-B-B-Y-B-H-O-Y. And pretty well all of my stuff at the moment is going on Biteside.com. So, yeah, go check it out. Excellent. I'm Seamus Byrne. I'm at Seamus on Twitter and I think I'm Seamus Byrne on Instagram, but I don't really post much stuff there anymore. That's kind of part of that old sad story, right? Of when one of my cats died, I'm like, I don't like Instagram anymore because I don't have, I don't want to even put new pictures up of other cats because what if the same thing is going to happen to them now? I don't know. Anyway, that's speaking of cans of worms. <laughs> um, we we, just, we at, just got very real just then. We did. <laughs> um, but at Seamus Burn over there. Um, but of course, yeah, most of the stuff that I do is on Byteside at Byteside on Twitter. Um, we actually, later this week, there's a bit of a, a, a concept bubbling, maybe around lunchtime on Thursday, go and check uh, our Byteside account for information. But we might be trying to hold a bit of a, a trivia quiz thing on our Twitter spaces setup uh, later this week. Uh, we've got some codes from Blizzard to give away for their classic, um, the, the classic games bundle. Uh, which was their old rock and roll racing and uh, Lost Vikings and Blackthorn, um, come of the classic games. But yeah, we, so we thought, hey, maybe we could do these codes with a bit of a just a fun lunchtime trivia and see if Spaces happens to be an environment that actually lets that kind of thing work well. So go and check the Twitter account. And yeah, if you like the idea of winning some codes to some cool, fun games, um, then, yeah, watch out for when we announce that. They, they don't have a scheduling feature for Spaces yet, so, you know, that, that side of it doesn't work, but we will make sure and announce it very clearly multiple times over the next few days when exactly we're going to do that. Uh, and, of course, you can find all our other stuff on the Byte side on Instagram and all the other places that you like finding things. Byteside.com is the main place to find everything. Uh, until next week, we'll catch you then.